All right, you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to Genesis chapter 18. I think probably all of us have had um, the experience of having expected guests on the way to your house. You know, they'll be there at any minute, and, uh, and yet the house is still not ready, and neither is the food. Uh, and so what follows is a, a whirlwind of activity. And, and then you've got someone, uh, often it's, it's a mom or a, a dad, uh, who has to step into the role of domestic drill sergeant. I wonder who it is in your home who usually is the one that falls into that role, uh, darting back and forth uh, through the house, passing out orders and, and whipping everybody into shape, sweep the entryway, uh, why isn't there toilet paper in the bathroom, uh, get, get, your, get those shoes off of the floor, put the dog away, why are you in your PJs, kid, put some clothes on, uh, somebody check the, the, the rolls in the oven, and so on. It's just this last minute frenzy, some of you are smiling, you know what I'm talking about, you've been there. Now, why this frenetic activity? Because these people are coming to your home. They are guests. They are important. We want them to feel that they are important, and we want to serve them well through hospitality. Now, in our text today, we've got something kind of like that happening. We're going to find Abraham is visited by some important guests. But the difference is that they are totally unexpected. Uh, one moment, Abraham is, is there at home, and he's taking it easy at the door of his tent, and, and the next moment, these visitors show up, and we, we find this uh, nearly 100-year-old man literally running around like crazy, uh, darting to and fro, and, and barking orders, and doing everything he can to take care of these mysterious visitors that have come to his tent, uh, treating them like royalty which is quite appropriate in this situation, because eventually Abraham comes to realize that one of these visitors is none other than God. And God's visit to Abraham isn't just a random, purposeless visit. God's got a specific agenda, a specific ministry of encouragement and grace to give to Abraham and, and his wife Sarah at this moment. And as we read and reflect on this passage, I believe that you're going to find the Lord's going to minister to you and encourage you as we learn more about God and His relationship with His people. So, please stand with me now uh, as we listen to the reading of God's Word. We're in Genesis chapter 18, and we're going to start at verse 1 and read on down through uh, verse 21. Hear the Word of the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran down from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Uh, Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a, a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent and to Sarah and said, Quick! Uh, Three sayas of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to to a young man who prepared it quickly. 
Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Uh, The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. (laughs) Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your holy and life-giving Word. I pray that this Word this morning would be like food for our souls, and I pray that you would encourage our hearts this morning as we see something of your beauty and your glory and your grace. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The very best thing about life in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve wasn't the beauty of the garden, as wonderful as that was, I'm sure. It wasn't the uh, abundant, delicious food, although you can bet there was a lot of it and better than anything that we've had. It wasn't the the animals, all the animals that Adam and Eve enjoyed a peaceful coexistence with, as wonderful as animals are. Uh, The greatest thing that they enjoyed was friendship with God. They enjoyed perfect communion and fellowship with the Lord, walking with Him and talking with Him in the cool of the day, learning from Him, experiencing His glory and His beauty with eyes undimmed. An ongoing theme in the Bible is that though man is estranged from God, running from God, having declared war against God, God's great desire is nevertheless to put an end to the warfare and to restore a friendship and a fellowship with humanity that was broken. And as we've been studying the life of Abraham and the promises of God that, um, uh, that He's been giving Abraham, uh, we've seen that at the heart of these promises uh, would come a people that He would claim as His own. And God says, they will be My people, and I will be their God. And in his relationship with Abraham, God gives us a a glimpse of what his relationship with his people will look like. Indeed, three times in the Bible, Abraham is called a friend of God. Did you know that? 
a friend of God. And in our text today, we see at least three expressions of God's friendship with Abraham, and it's going to show us something of how God deals with all of his friends. Uh, the, first, uh, thing that, the first way that we see God demonstrate his friendship in the text is through taking initiative and drawing near. Taking initiative and drawing near. Verse 1 says that the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Uh, he's, he's sitting there at his, his tent. When you think tent, don't think, uh, don't think Boy Scout tent, don't think Walmart tent that you use just for a, you know, an overnight camping trip. Uh, these, these tents would have been large and, and, uh, and, and very uh, spacious and uh, even somewhat um, uh, uh, impressive uh, by, uh, by what we, compared to what we would think of uh, as a tent. Uh, made a very thick uh, heavy material. Uh, that was to keep things cool on the inside. So even though it could be blazing hot on the outside, it could be comfortable uh, on, the, on the inside. This is where these people are living. This is not just a, just a camping trip. And the text says that it was the heat of the day. Uh, in the most extreme temperatures in the daytime, Abraham and his people would have ceased from most of their activities to take a break. Uh, take a little rest, not unlike the siesta uh, that you see in some cultures today, where for a couple of hours just everything uh, shuts down because it's just so hot outside. There's, there's no point in being out there. It could even be dangerous. And you can imagine Abraham sitting there at the entrance of his tent uh, during the siesta, uh, beginning to doze off, and just before his eyelids close all the way, he suddenly sees a little ways off three men just standing there looking at him. Now, in this culture, uh, folks, visitors would stand off a little bit at the distance. That would have actually been considered polite. That would have been the equivalent of knocking on the door. Uh, Verse 2 says, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, there's some debate here as to whether or not Abraham right away knows that this is a divine visit. I think at first he's not aware. Uh, In fact, I think that the book of Hebrews refers to this incident and the next one in chapter 19 where where it talks about, you know, show hospitality to to strangers because because some people have entertained angels unaware. And I think that's what's going on here with Abraham, at least at at first, is the Lord and two angels uh, that have come. Uh, That will all be clear as you go further on through chapter chapter 18. And, um, And Abraham's use of the word Lord here could simply be an honorific title of respect. And bowing down is reflective of of humble Middle Eastern hospitality. In the Middle East, hospitality towards guests is a big deal. It's really a matter of honor. And in the Bible, um, it's really seen as a a moral virtue. And Middle Eastern hospitality can get quite lavish. Uh, We're going to see that in a moment. It starts small here, but it's going to get quite impressive in a few verses. Uh, Verse 4, he says, Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Of course, travelers uh, back then would have had open sandals. Their feet would have gotten quite dirty, so that was, that was standard hospitality. He says, rest yourselves under the tree while I bring you a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on. In other words, just have a, have a little bite to eat. Have a small snack and get your, get your strength back up before you continue on on this, on this journey. Uh, things begin to get even a little bit more humorous as you follow the text. You, you see this nearly 100-year-old man sprinting around in a, in a frenzy. Um, after, after running to the men, uh, verse 6 says that Abraham then went quickly to the tent and said, Quick, Sarah, uh, three sayas of fine flour and, and, make, and make cakes and be fast about it. Not, not, not like how you normally are. <laughs> Whip it up. We got visitors here. 
A seah is two gallons. He wants three. <laughs> that's an incredible, that's a lot of seahs. <laughs> that's, a lot, that's a lot of flour. It's a lot of food. And then in verse 7, we find Abraham running again, and he takes a calf, and he gives it to one of his young, pe- young men to prepare. A, a calf would not have been ordinary food. This would have been like celebratory food. Remember the prodigal son story? The prodigal comes back, hey, let's celebrate, let's kill the fatted calf and, and have a feast. Uh, and this is way more than enough food for these three men. This is like rolling out the red carpet and sparing no expense for his guests. And what's humorous about this is that the whole thing started with Abraham just offering them a little midday snack. <laughs> he said, I'll get you a morsel of bread. But eventually it turns into a huge multi-course meal, a banquet. It reminds me of my first experience with Middle Eastern hospitality when I was, in, I was a Bible college student in Canada, and I was part of this ministry, and we go into the city of Calgary and into the homes of these Middle Eastern uh, Muslim families, and we were teaching and tutoring English uh, to the kids, and we were also purposely building relationships with these families and sharing the gospel with them. And when these uh, families would feed us, it would just be an incredible amount of food. There is no such thing as portion control. If, if you're on a diet, just you know, throw that out the window. Uh, you eat, and you eat, and you eat, and after you are full and you tell them that you are full, they continue to offer you more, and they are not satisfied until you are waddling out of their homes, completely stuffed. And so we felt totally honored and taken care of. Abraham is seeking to do that to these visitors and more. He's rich, so he can do much more. And by the way, it says that this was prepared quickly. This process would have taken hours, even going at their fastest. This would have been hard work. Verse 8 says he, he then took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared, and he set it before them. And, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Again, lavish Middle Eastern hospitality. Uh, you don't eat until you're sure that your guests have everything that they need. He's like, a, he's like a good waiter standing over the table. My name is Abraham, and I'll be taking care of you tonight. And he's taking good care of them. Now, all of this buildup and emphasis on Abraham's hospitality, well, I think there's a, uh, there's a couple things that, that we can draw from this. One, is it's going to be a contrast with the hospitality that the angels receive in Sodom the city of Sodom in the next section, which is not good hospitality there. But for our purposes today, this, this hospitality really uh, serves to put the spotlight on something that's even more remarkable than Abraham's hospitality, and that is that the Lord receives Abraham's hospitality. You think about that. God showed up for dinner. Showed up for dinner. God has come to break bread with His servants. He's taken the initiative to move close to Abraham in this way. God could have easily said, Abraham, you don't need to go through all of these preparations. I'm God. I don't need to eat. I'm God. I don't need to drink. I don't need to rest under a tree. This is a waste of time. I just have a message to deliver. Let's just cut to the chase, and let's get to the point. He doesn't do that. Instead, in verse 5, after Abraham offers hospitality, they say, well, yes, do as you've said. They want to hang out for a long time. Why? Because there is something about eating together, isn't there? Uh, we, we actually understand something of this today. Um, 
We have our monthly fellowship meals at Harbin's. Last night's was great, by the way. We, we sang Christmas carols around the, around the table. That was awesome. Uh, but the original vision behind the fellowship meals here at Harbin's Church was not simply that sometimes it's convenient to have lunch already made and here, and we can just fill up our bellies after a long sermon from Deemer. There's more to it than that. Instead, the reason we do it is that eating together, breaking bread together, is an opportunity to, to demonstrate uh, unity uh, and, and a sense of family with other people in the church. That's why I encourage you, by the way, during our fellowship meals, to try to make a conscious effort to sit with different people uh, from time to time. Sit not always with your best friends. Sit with someone that you don't know well and get to know them and show them interest, show an interest in their life because they're family. Now, if you really want to live on the edge and get really crazy, sit with somebody in the church that you have some tension with. Someone who's rubbed you the wrong way. Right? You, you, you knew people at Harbin's. You're like, really? I thought this was a perfect church. Nobody, uh, uh, nobody rubs anyone the wrong way here. No, it happens. It happens. Uh, maybe somebody you, you had a little spat with. Uh, sit with that person. Break bread with that person. Love that person. And demonstrate your unity with that person through a meal together. To refuse to sit down and have a meal with somebody, to refuse to do that, is communicating something very, very dark in that relationship. Something, bro- something is broken there. In the Scriptures, to share a meal with someone signified that you were, you were in fellowship with that person. In fact, covenants were sealed often with a feast. And let's remember the backdrop of this story. Uh, it's uh, the... Um, there's been the introduction and explanation of God's covenant going on in chapter 15 and in chapter 17. And in the ancient Near East, in the wake of sealing a covenant bond, table fellowship signified peace and unity between the two parties. And, and so here in, in chapter 18, now they're sitting down and eating together. And when God sits and eats with Abraham, we learn something very important about God. Namely, that God is not distant from His people, and in fact, He loves to be near His people. Dale Davis writes that He is the sociable God. He is awesome, but not stuffy. He's the Lord who draws near. You know, there are Christians that are way more stuffy than God. Way more standoffish and and aloof from people, refusing to be near and associate with people whom they may consider beneath them. And how incredibly ungodlike that is, because everybody is beneath God, and yet He draws near. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, sits down to eat a meal with an embezzling tax collector like Zacchaeus. He converses with an immoral woman. He breaks bread with a sinner like Matthew. And the aloof, stuffy, arrogant, highbrow religious leaders saw it as a mark against Jesus. They were scandalized by it. Uh, That He would actually eat with sinners. Indeed, Jesus was called a friend of sinners. And and we, we revel in that title for Jesus, but originally that title was meant to be an insult. It wasn't a compliment that he would actually associate himself with such people. One of the main things that God is doing in redemption is not simply getting people out of hell. He is also restoring relationships. 
a relationship between man and God that went wrong in the garden because of sin. You know, sometimes we, we kind of depersonalize the gospel. Uh, we make it about, we, we, we talk a lot about, we use big words, justification, imputation. We talk about all these, these things, and that, that's all good. Those are critical components of the gospel. But what's the point of it all? The point is that God wants to be our friend and sit and eat with us, to laugh and rejoice with us. He wants us to be home with Him. Jesus says to the wayward, rebellious church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Again, this, this image of eating signifying that close, intimate fellowship. Elsewhere, the Lord says, if anyone loves me, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus extends that offer of love and fellowship to you right now. Not that he needs our friendship. He didn't create man because he was lonely. Sometimes little, little children's Bibles will give you the wrong idea. Watch out for those children's Bibles. There's some bad teaching in some kids' Bibles. (laughs) Be careful about that. Well, God was lonely. He needed a friend, and he made Adam. That's not not true. Uh, Our our God is a triune God, and there was perfect fellowship and intimacy between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past. God is self-sufficient. Doesn't need anything. Doesn't need us. And so God's interest in fellowship with man is simply an overflow of the love of this sociable God. And He desires uh, others to enter into the enjoyment of communion and fellowship with Him that He Himself enjoyed with the other members of the Godhead before the foundation of the world. And you may think, well, I have done so many bad things, and I've done so many wicked things, and I've been awful to God in my life. Surely God would have nothing to do with somebody like me. Maybe he would with Abraham. Maybe he would with some of these other great, awesome characters uh, in the Bible, but not me. And my response to you cannot be better than what the psalmist said in Psalm 145, 18, that the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So be encouraged by that. God demonstrates his friendship by taking initiative and drawing near. God also does this through offering reassurance and grace. And when we get down to verse 9, after what must have been hours of preparation and eating and fellowship, again, God's not in a hurry. I think God's actually enjoying the fellowship more than anyone else there. But finally, the visitors get to what I think is the, one of the main points of the visit. Verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. Now, if Abraham hasn't yet figured out the identity of this visitor, he will in the next verse. When we are told in verse 10, the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. This is exactly what God said to Abraham in chapter 17. And so we might be wondering, well, why would, why would, God, do, why would God just repeat the same information again? And, and I think because it's not for Abraham. Uh, this time it's time to encourage Sarah and give her some help and reassurance. Look at the end of verse 10. <clears throat> It says that Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. She's eavesdropping. Can you blame her? I mean, she's in the tent, and she's doing the dishes, and she's just heard her name mentioned, these people talking about her. 
you know you would be eavesdropping too if you're in a situation like that. What, what are they talking about? They said my name. He puts her ear up to the door of the tent. Maybe she's got one of those little cups or something. And God, <clears throat> because he's God, knows that Sarah is behind the tent. He's simply asking about Sarah to move the conversation to the main point and perhaps to get Sarah's attention because he knows that Sarah's not going to be able to resist listening now. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old. Now, if Moses hasn't made the point clear, he says, then advanced in years. And if you're still having trouble with the point, then he says, the way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, she's postmenopausal. Uh, Moses here is trying to help us see the impossible kind of situation that Abraham and Sarah are in. And let's be honest, it was impossible when the promise was first given in chapter 12, 25 years ago. They were old back then, y'all. And she had been infertile her whole life. And God doesn't want to make it any easier. He makes it harder by making them wait. And as time goes on, the fulfillment of the the prophecy, the promise, seems less and less likely. In chapter 15, uh, Abraham contemplates adopting his servant Eliezer and just regarding him to be the son of promise, and God says, no, it's going to be somebody, Abraham, from your own body. In chapter 16, Sarah, who is now well into her 70s, is like, okay, but God didn't say my body. (laughs) So, Found a loophole there. So Abraham, go marry our younger servant, Hagar. Get her pregnant. We'll have a child through her, and and that'll be the one. And Ishmael is born. And how does God respond to Sarah's attempt to help God out? He's silent for 13 years. In chapter 17, God reiterates the promise. Abraham says, great, may Ishmael be the son of promise. And God says, no, it's going to be from you and Sarah. So now we're in chapter 18. Sarah's 89. Abraham's 99. Can you imagine how hard these past 25 years would have been for Sarah? She first heard the promise when she was 65. And, and when she first heard it, that must have lightened her heart at that time, being, uh, going so long, decades, without being unable to have a child. But now, after all of this time, that light heart is surely very heavy and discouraged. And this is why God has come. He's come to help her. He's come to help Sarah in her faith, to encourage her heart and to give her hope. And so when Sarah hears the word, she says, praise God, hallelujah, I'm having a baby, let's buy a crib and paint the nursery blue. Is that what she says? No. How does she respond? Look, verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old. Lord is Abraham, not God. (laughs) Abraham's old. Shall I have pleasure? She laughs. She's cynical. If we were honest with ourselves, we have probably been there with Sarah at many times in our own life, times where we have come to doubt God's good intentions for us, times where we have doubted God's promises and His provision and His care for us, not because God has done us wrong. God never does us, does us wrong, but instead because God has not delivered in the way that we thought that He should deliver. And we may even be tempted to feel like we have been burned by God. And we can get as cynical as Sarah, easily. Now, here's what's kind of funny. God rebukes Sarah, but he does it 
by turning to Abraham and doing it through him. I guess because Sarah is still behind the tent, maybe? It's kind of a funny conversation here. And he asked, why did Sarah laugh? Turns to Abraham and said, why did Sarah laugh? And Abraham says, nothing. Probably a smart move. I'm not getting involved in this one. And then God gives one of his most famous lines in the whole Bible. Verse 14, it's anything too hard for the Lord. You know, that could be translated, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Or is anything too marvelous for the Lord? It's the, it's the same word used in Jeremiah 32. Ah, Lord God, you've made the heavens and the earth with, with your outstretched arm, and nothing is too wonderful for you. Same word. Psalm 18, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Same word. And here God says, is there anything too wonderful, too marvelous for the Lord that He cannot do? It's a rhetorical question. You know the answer. Verse 15, Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. She was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Sarah tries to cover up her sin, which is foolish because you can't hide anything from the Lord. But the instinct of a sinner is not to repent when they are called out and confronted for their sin. The instinct is to defend and justify ourselves and even hide. That's exactly what Adam did in the garden. He hid, and then when he was cornered, he justified himself and made excuses, tried to cover up his sin. That's what Sarah's doing. She's afraid. And in response to this, answer me this. How is Sarah punished? She's not. That's the grace of God. Folks, God is so much more gracious than you or I, isn't He? Somebody laughs at us. Somebody insults us. And what do we do? We get mad. We write them off. And we take our toys and we go home. That's what we do. But God is a better friend to us than we are to others. God, God briefly calls her out. It's a, brief, it's a very light rebuke. And then he moves on, and he remains steadfast in his commitment to bless her. That's grace. And he wants Sarah to know that, yes, his promises are wonderful, and yes, his promises are uh, marvelous, but they are not too hard for him to keep. You may wonder, well, Deemer, you said that God was giving Sarah this word to encourage and reassure her, but it doesn't really look like she was reassured or encouraged. I mean, she's here laughing. She's cynical. So did God fail? Not in the least. How do I know that? I know that because the author of Hebrews says, by faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. I want you to think about that. Sarah heard the word. She heard the promise, and though in the moment she expressed cynicism, well, we all know what the Bible says, right, about the relationship between God's Word and our faith. How is faith grown according to the Scriptures? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by what? The Word of Christ. So, if I'm looking at Genesis 18 here, 
and I'm comparing it with Hebrews 11 here, it is obvious that Sarah had a change of heart off camera, right? We don't see it here in the moment in Genesis 18, but it's obvious that she did according to Hebrews 11. The word that God gave Sarah penetrated through that deep, tough shell of cynicism that was around her heart, and a seed of faith was planted. And that shell eventually dissolved, and she, she received faith and, and the power to conceive through faith. She got to a point where she no longer looked to her own abilities to bring about the promise, uh, to bring it about by her own labors. No more schemes no more manipulations, no more loopholes, no more clever ideas about how to help God out. In the wake of this encounter with God in chapter 18, Sarah evidently came to the very end of herself so that all that she has now is God's Word. That's it. She's old. She's worn out. Her husband's old. No more schemes, no more tricks. She can't think of any other ideas. All she has is the Word. All she has is the promise, and that is exactly where she needed to be. That's where you and I need to be. Sarah's problem is our problem. We view life and reality on the basis of what we can see around us, and we make conclusions and interpretations about our circumstances apart from viewing them through the lens of God's Word. And we get in trouble every time when we do that, and we make everything about us, and we listen to our voice more than God's voice. We listen to the voices in our heads more. Boy, don't listen to voices in your head. Listen to God's voice through His Word. If you stay out of His Word, if you stay out of this book, I guarantee you that you will become cynical and skeptical and jaded, and your faith will shrivel, and you will live in despair. What Sarah needed and what you and I need is a direct message, a direct word from God to us right now, whatever you're going through. And God personally delivered His life-giving, faith-building word to Sarah through a visit, through a theophany. And brothers and sisters, God personally delivers a direct word to you every time you crack open this book and you are seeking Him. So in your most hardened and discouraged and cynical moments, don't neglect the Word. You actually need it more than ever. In those times where you, those times where you feel the least like going to God's Word is the time where you actually need to do it the most. Don't neglect it, and don't refrain from sharing it with other people. Sometimes we get afraid to do that. Well, this person's going to be cynical. This person's not going to respond uh, the right way. We're not called to share the Word of God with people only when we think that they're going to receive it. We preach the Word in season and out of season to whomever, whenever, wherever. God wasn't afraid to share the Word with Sarah. God wasn't like, oh man, she's going to get mad. She's going to get cynical. She's going to laugh at me, so I guess I'm not going to share the Word. No, He shares the Word, and the Word did its work and awakened faith in Sarah's heart and blessed her. You have nothing more powerful, nothing more important to say to anybody than what God has said in His Word. And the promises we find there are promises about God's care, God's provision, God's mercy, God's forgiveness, promises that may seem too marvelous to be true, 
but not a single one of them are too hard for the Lord to keep. The final way that we see a demonstration of God's friendship is through personal self-disclosure. We instinctively know that deep relationships are experienced not merely through spending lots of time with the person, because you can spend lots of time with somebody and you don't really know them. They don't really let you in. But when you find yourself sharing things with them that you wouldn't share with other people, and when they themselves begin sharing in the same way, you then know that you've got a deeper level of friendship going on. Verse 16 says, The men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to, to set them on their way. Again, that's more Middle Eastern hospitality. When the guests leave, you just don't show them to the door. You actually go a ways with them uh, down, the, down the path, down, down towards the, their next town or village that they're going, maybe go halfway or something, partway, third way, I don't know. Just you're going with them to make sure that they're okay. That's the hospitality. Men set out from Sodom out towards Sodom. Uh, Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Lord, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? That's a rhetorical question. Uh, the answer is, in light of my relationship with Abraham, of course not. Of course I will not hide these matters. And so, in a moment, God's going to reveal to Abraham another purpose in his visit, and that's to bring judgment upon the evil city of Sodom. And we'll get into that in a future message. But my point for now is simply to draw our attention to the fact that God is a God of self-disclosure. God is not distant. God is not aloof. He not only shows up for dinner and breaks bread, He also reveals to His people important matters on His heart important plans, important purposes. This is a mark of the intimate kind of relationship that he has with his people. And we see this theme continuing throughout the entire Bible. Uh, Amos 3.7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants. Uh, and, G- and Jesus, in John chapter 15, says to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. Now, it's not that God's people are not servants, I mean, the one thing I just read in Amos just, just, just called people servants of God. It's not that God's people are not servants, but the point that Jesus is making is that the quality of Jesus' relationship with his people is much deeper than that. Yes, we are servants, but we are more than that. Jesus says, I don't call you servants, but I have called you friends. As opposed to a master who keeps things from his servants, Jesus says in John 15, 15, all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. There's full disclosure. There's an openness that Jesus has with his people. He's less like a slave owner, and he's more like a king that rises to the heights of power, and his friends rise with him. And he brings them into his inner circle, and, and we, the friends of the king, have access to information about the king's plans and purposes, and even more, the king has shared his own heart with us. While the servant might have some knowledge, uh, true friends are, are, are brought in and, and, and told the whole story. And so it says in Psalm 25, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Some translations say, uh, not the friendship, but the secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear him. Because the idea there is that the relationship between God and his friends is a relationship where secrets are disclosed. 
uh, where we are being let in on things previously unknown. Uh, Matthew Henry reminds us that those who by faith live a life of communion with God cannot but know more of His mind than other people. They have a better insight than others into what is present and a better foresight of what is to come. It's not that God tells us every single thing in the universe that we need to know. I was just talking with our membership class uh, this morning, uh, wrestling with a very hard question, and, it's, it's, and I had to tell them there are just some things that we're not going to know because the secret things, there are secret things that belong to the Lord. But then there are other secrets and other things that He lets His people in on, and He brings us into the circle. There's an intimacy there. There's a, a bearing of heart and soul. How different God is uh, from the false God of Islam, who is only distant and transcendent. How, how different uh, than the God of deism, who merely makes the universe, and then He checks out, and He leaves us to ourselves. But our God has not stayed aloof in the heavens. He, yes, He is transcendent, but He is also simultaneously imminent. He's always sought to bridge the distance, to bridge the gap between himself and his people, to befriend them, uh, to commune and fellowship with them, to love them. And while Abraham had an amazing encounter with God, it is not the most amazing move that God made to bridge the gap between himself and man. 2,000 years ago, a Jewish carpenter named Joseph was engaged to a young woman named Mary And to his surprise, his fiancée was suddenly found to be pregnant with child. And an angel comes to reassure Joseph, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That last line is important. He will save his people from their sins. The the main reason there's a relational gap between man and God is because of our sin. And Jesus came that first Christmas to deal with that. Uh, The Apostle Matthew goes on to write that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. It's one of the most beautiful titles for Jesus. He's with us. God loves to be among His people. And in the incarnation, uh, we find God not just appearing to be a man as He did with Abraham. In the incarnation of Christ, that first Christmas, uh, God actually became a man. Jesus Christ is the ultimate self-disclosure of who God is. Indeed, it has been well said that Jesus is the exegesis of of the Father of God the Father. He exegetes God the Father. He reveals and explains who God is. And when the angel visits Mary and she asks, how can I carry the Christ child since I am a virgin? The angel turns to Mary and says, nothing is impossible. Nothing is too hard. Nothing is too wonderful. Nothing is too marvelous. God. And on that night when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the angels celebrated, and they sang glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Peace. In our sin and rebellion against God, we have been hostile 
to God. We have waged war against God. Uh, Going to war against God is a very foolish thing, by the way, in case you don't know that. You're going to lose every time. And God could have easily won the war through smashing every sinner into oblivion. That would have brought about peace in the universe. But God came down to bring peace in a different way. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's the surprising twist in the story, that Jesus secured peace between God and man, not by smashing man, but by being smashed in man's place, dying on a cross, absorbing God's wrath and judgment on our behalf, and paying the price for the sins of His friends. And for all who by faith receive Jesus' payment for sins, guess what? The war is over, and peace has come. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, on the, on the eve of His crucifixion, we find Jesus again sharing a fellowship meal with His friends. And they break bread, which foreshadows the breaking of Jesus' body on the cross, and they drink wine, which points to the spilling of His blood for the sins of the world. And it is amazing that though Jesus is only hours away from the worst pain and suffering imaginable, Jesus enjoy looking past that, and, and, and He's looking forward to something else. And He says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer, for I tell you... I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's encouraging to know. Because even though Jesus has paid the price for sin, and even though we have received His payment by faith, and even though that means now that we have friendship with God and access to God like never before, there still is a kind of distance there, isn't there? Our present experience with God, as good as it is, is only an appetizer for something better. And Jesus, that last supper with His disciples, was looking ahead to that. He was looking forward to that. There's a great and grand reunion coming between God and all of His friends. And the Bible describes that reunion in terms of deep, intimate, joyful, unifying table fellowship. Isaiah 25 looks forward to that great day, a day when death is swallowed up, a a day where tearful eyes will be dried. And Isaiah says that on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Don't be envious of the meal that God shared with Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, because Jesus looks forward to a day when many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and with the Father in the kingdom of heaven. It's what the Bible elsewhere calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, the the great meal that celebrates the consummation of Jesus' relationship with His bride, the church, where the reunion will be full and complete. No more long-distance relationship between us and God. He'll be right there, and we'll be right there with Him, and we will experience the fullness of what that name, Emmanuel, means, because God will be with us 
like never before. And never again will there be distance. Never again will there be separation. It's going to be one big global celebration like nothing ever seen. It's the, the, the biggest and happiest Christmas party that you've ever seen will not hold a candle to what's coming for you. If you're here this morning and you walk through these doors unbelieving, you can know true friendship with God right now. And you can be a part of the grand celebration to come in the kingdom of God. I want you to be at that feast with us. I don't want you to miss out. I don't want you to be shut out of what's coming. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. They're on the outside. I don't want you to be on the outside, shut out in the cold. Turn from your sins, come to God, and know His great and glorious fellowship. If you're here this morning as a believer already, I believe God in His providence has ordained this day to remind you that He is already your friend, that He loves you. God wants you to know that. He loves you. God wants you to know that He's on your side. Uh, He's walking with you through your trials, through the stuff that you're going through right now. You have a friend that's sticking by you closer than a brother, and He is 100% for you. And He proved it by drawing near to you, taking the initiative and graciously laying down his life for you. So, so hold fast to your great king, to your master, to your friend, and take comfort in his unending love for you, saying with the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. Pray with me.